This episode is a little late because after recording and editing, I didn't think it was weird enough to fully encapsulate the Magonia experience. As a result, I went back and recorded a few new reports. I'm sure none of you are upset about getting extra content. Now, on with the show. The folk are the grandest I have ever seen. They are far superior to us, and that is why they call themselves the gentry. They are not a working class, but a military aristocratic class, tall and noble-appearing. They are a distinct race between our race and that of spirits, as they have told me. Their qualifications are tremendous. We could cut off half the human race, but would not, they said, for we are expecting salvation. And I knew a man three or four years ago whom they struck down with paralysis. Their sight is so penetrating that I think they could see through the earth. They have a silvery voice, quick and sweet. The gentry live inside mountains in beautiful castles, and there are a good many branches of them in other countries, and especially in Ireland. Some live in the Wicklow Mountains near Dublin. Like armies, they have their stations and move from one to another. My guide and informer said to me once, I command a regiment, Mr. Blank, name left unsaid. The gentry take great interest in the affairs of men, and they always stand for justice and right. Sometimes they fight amongst themselves. They take young and intelligent people who are interesting. They take the whole body and soul, transmuting the body to a body much like their own. This account was given to Walter Wentz, who wrote a thesis in 1909 entitled The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. While it describes the gentry from fairy lore, their actions closely resemble those of modern-day extraterrestrial visitors. The taking of, quote, young and intelligent people, and the transmutation of their bodies into something between human and spirit, closely resembles the reports of abductees who dematerialize and are transported through the walls or windows by their gray kidnappers. Even more peculiar, these same reports mirror those of spectral entities or gods who took select humans in the distant past. Are we being visited by a myriad of different entities who just happen to have the same modus operandi? Or are we, to this day, still being taken by the same creatures that abducted our ancestors in ages past? Could these creatures simply be changing their disguises? Are angels demons, fairies, and aliens, really all just the same thing. We will examine this premise in tonight's book, Passport to Magonia, by Jacques Vallée. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Goblins! 
Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank my generous patrons who helped to make this show a reality. Specifically, I want to thank Annie Kay and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. All patrons get early access to episodes, and those pledging $3 or more a month get extended episodes. Those people donating at higher tiers get shoutouts on News Brief and Book Club episodes. If you too want to join the Esoteric Archive, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Dr. Jacques Vallée was born in France and earned his undergraduate degrees before moving to Austin, Texas in 1962. It was here that he began his research and argument in favor of the ETH, or the Extraterrestrial Hypothesis. The premise of the ETH is that UFOs are piloted by extraterrestrial aliens who are visiting from other worlds. It's a very science-driven theory based on hard materialism. In 1967, he received his PhD from Northwestern University, which is where he met and befriended J. Allen Hynek of Project Blue Book fame. After completing two research works on the idea that UFOs are extraterrestrial alien life forms, Jacques concluded that there had to be a bit more to the phenomena. Expanding his research to a global scale, he discovered that these encounters are not isolated to one area of the globe, nor are they new. The first edition of Passport to Magonia was released in 1969 and, well, it bombed. Hard. It was a little better received in Europe, but overall, the idea was not a success especially in light of how popular his first two books were. After the release, he received praise from an unexpected source, the Fortians. Charles Fort died in 1932, but his legacy is still felt today. He was one of, if not the pioneer of the anomalous research field. In his lifetime, he was amused to find that his work had given him a cult-like following. His name quickly became synonymous with anything paranormal, occult, or cryptozoological. Proponents of his research and reporting methodology adopted his moniker with the title of Fortian. In 1969, when Passport to Magonia was released, the Fortians decided to take a deep dive into Valet's research and citations, and they found that it was entirely accurate. This praise helped sales of the book in paperback, but it was still far from a bestseller. Fortunately, this project aged far, far better than most written at the time. In much the same way that researchers of the mid-century cited Charles Fort as being influential in how they viewed paranormal phenomena, researchers today do the same with Valet. He's even been influential enough that his character has become a pop culture touchstone. In Steven Spielberg's 1977 movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the character Claude Lacombe was based heavily on Valet, whose work influenced the direction of the plot. In an interview, it is revealed that he tried to get Spielberg to model the encounters more on his findings from Passport to Magonia than on actual physical extraterrestrials, 
but Spielberg wanted to deliver something that was more expected by the audience. In a 1996 episode of The X-Files, there are two gray alien pilots whose names were later revealed to be Jacques Schaefer and Robert Vallée, a tribute to the researcher and author. Obviously, this was one of the comedic episodes. In Passport to Magonia, Vallée proposes that throughout all time, across all cultures of the world, people have been encountering the other. The description of and messages from these entities have changed throughout time, but they all share similar motifs. Enough so that when taken as a whole, these reports convinced Valet that they are describing the same thing. What that thing is, is still undetermined. This book doesn't offer an answer. It simply reports on what has been recorded. How broad a span of time is Valet working with? While he is using all recorded evidence that can be substantiated, aka not noticeably faked or forged, the majority of his reports span the time period from 1868 to 1968. In fact, the entire second half of the book is just a listing of and summary of these reports. Coincidentally, it is this meticulous listing of reports that the Fordians confirmed boosting the credibility of Valet's work. Before we get into Valet's ultimate conclusions, let's take a look at some of these anomalous encounters. I'm going to start out with what I have generally listed as fairy encounters. A man who lived at a Struckenless, and yes, I had to look up how to pronounce that because it is in Welsh, in Brecknockshire, going out one day to look after his cattle and sheep on the mountain, disappeared. In about three weeks, after a search had been made in vain for him, and his wife had given him up for dead, he came home. His wife asked him where he had been for the last three weeks. Three weeks? Is it three weeks you call three hours? said he. Pressed to say where he had been, he told her he had been playing his flute, which he usually took with him on the mountain, at the Lorfa, a spot near Van Poole, when he was surrounded at a distance by little beings like men, who closed nearer and nearer to him until they became a very small circle. They sang and danced and so affected him that he quite lost himself. They offered him some cakes to eat, of which he partook, and he had never enjoyed himself so well in his life. Sadly, Beyond this account, there is no more detailed description of what these, quote, little beings like men actually looked like. Now, there are several aspects of this encounter I want you to pay attention to. The loss of time, or time distortion. An invitation to play, either music or dance. An exchange of food. And the return of the person who had physically changed very little. Keep these in mind as we continue. In an Irish story told some time after the famine of 1846, we hear a tale from Pat Feeney. One day, a little old woman came to his house asking for some oats. Patty had so little that he was ashamed to offer it, so he offered her some potatoes instead, 
but she wanted oatmeal, and then he gave her all that he had. She told him to place it back in the bin till she should return for it. This he did, and the next morning the bin was overflowing with oatmeal. The woman was one of the gentry. This story sounds rather fantastic, and it follows the theme of many fairy tales, but this was not told as mythology. This was recorded as an actual encounter with an otherworldly being. There seems to be a weird connection with these entities and the cultural obligations of hospitality. Basically, when someone visits, you give what you can, and in turn, you are rewarded in some way. Although it's usually a social reward of news, information, or prophecy, not an overflowing bin of oatmeal. Here's another account that is much, much older. In fact, it may be one that some of you are already familiar with. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he dressed, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. This is the biblical story of Lot, who met two angels at the gates of Sodom. After meeting them, he took them back to his home, offering them hospitality. As part of his obligations of hospitality, he also protected them from an angry mob who came to Lot's home. Now, the angels turned away the mob by blinding them, but they still rewarded Lot for upholding his obligations. They informed him that they were going to destroy the city in the morning and that he should take his family, both immediate and extended, and leave. Some of you may not have considered that biblical angels could be lumped into this field of study, but we must remember that these entities are not the same as how we perceive them today. Yes, in this instance they are personified and appear human, or human-ish, but original accounts described angels as burning rings of fire with hundreds of eyes. The concept is that they are a non-human entity whose appearance is shaped by their interactions with mankind. Speaking of changing appearances, we look now to the changeling phenomena. The basic concept is that after a human child is born, fairies will sneak into the child's room and swap them for another fairy. In some instances, this is just an unruly fairy infant. And in some cases, it's a noisy elderly fairy who just wants a free, albeit perverse, meal. Of course, sometimes these children come back. During two whole years, nothing was heard of him. But at length, one morning, when his mother, who had long and bitterly mourned for him as dead, opened the door, whom should she see sitting on the threshold but Gito, with a bundle under his arm? He was dressed and looked exactly as when she last saw him, for he had not grown a bit. 
Where have you been all this time? asked his mother. Why, it was only yesterday that I went away, he replied. And opening the bundle, he showed her a dress that, quote, little children, as he called them, had given him for dancing with them. The dress was of white paper, without seam. With maternal caution, she put it into the fire. As we saw in earlier reports, there was a loss of time, an invitation to play, dance in this case, and a return in which the person changed very little. Again, this closely follows the fairy faith motif, but what if there is something more to this? I have a final fairy example that must be mentioned before moving on to other comparisons, and that is one of the fairy ring. Why, yes, the fairies do exist, and this is where they have often been seen dancing. The grass never gets high in the lines of the ring, for it is only the shortest and finest kind that grows there. In the middle, fairy mushrooms grow in a circle, and the fairies use them to sit upon. They are very little people, and are very fond of dancing and singing. They wear green coats, and sometimes red caps and red coats. Further explanation of this phenomena from the grandfather of Charles Darwin, Erasmus Darwin, says, There is a phenomenon supposed to be electric, which is not yet accounted for. I mean fairy rings, as they are called, so often seen on the grass. At times, larger parts or prominences of clouds gradually sinking as they move along are discharged on the moister parts of the grassy plains. Now this knob or corner of a cloud in being attracted to the earth will become nearly cylindrical, as loose wool would do when drawn into a thread, and will strike the earth with a stream of electricity, perhaps 2 to 10 yards in diameter. Just the external part of the cylinder burns the grass. So Erasmus Darwin's scientific explanation for fairy rings was basically an electrified mini-tornado. I mean, the guy tried. He didn't really have any more evidence for this weather phenomenon than folklorists have for fairies, but he certainly gave it his best attempt. It's safe to say that fairy rings are probably the one aspect of the phenomena that has been most closely examined by scientists. Theories range from fungal growth to plasma discharges to microbursts from the atmosphere. What's interesting is that these same explanations are also used in conjunction with crop circles. From a UFO encounter in an Australian swamp, we get the following witness statement. I saw a clearing in the reeds where they took off, and it was as everyone described it. In a circle roughly 30 feet in diameter, reeds had been flattened in a clockwise direction. One of the nests is a floating platform of clotted roots and weeds, apparently torn by tremendous force from the mud bottom beneath five feet of water. This event took place in 1966. Just a few years earlier in England, we have this report. 
July 16, 1963, will long be remembered in the annals of British ufology. Something appeared to have landed on farmer Roy Blanchard's field in the manor farm Carlton, Wiltshire. The marks on the ground were first discovered by a farm worker, Reg Alexander. They overlapped a potato field and a barley field. The marks comprised a saucer-shaped depression or crater 8 feet in diameter and about 4 inches in depth. In the center of this depression, there was found a 3 feet deep hole, variously described from 5 inches to 1 foot in diameter. Radiating from the central hole were four slot marks, four feet long and one foot wide. The object must have landed, if land it did, unseen. But Mr. Leonard Joliffe, a dairyman on the farm, reported he heard, quote, a blast one morning at approximately 6 a.m. The farmer later reported that he was quite baffled by the event. Quote, there isn't a trace of the potatoes and barley which were growing where the crater is now. No stalks, no roots, no leaves. The thing was heavy enough to crush rocks and stones into powder, yet it came down gently. We heard no crash, and whatever power it uses produces no heat nor noise. There was a brief, strange period of time in American history where objects called airships were seen throughout the country. Many of these sightings were generally reported west of the Mississippi River, and all sound quite a bit like a prototype blimp or zeppelin. The trick is, blimps and zeppelins hadn't been invented yet. At least, they hadn't been patented yet. It seems the concept was in the works, but at the time of these sightings, they weren't officially real yet. The following example comes from Constable Sumter and Deputy Sheriff McLemore of Hot Springs, Arkansas. While riding northwest from the city on the night of May 6, 1897, we noticed a brilliant light high in the heavens. Suddenly, it disappeared, and we said nothing about it, as we were looking for parties and did not want to make any noise. After riding four or five miles around the hills, we again saw the light, which now appeared to be much nearer to the earth. We stopped our horses and watched it coming down, until all at once it disappeared behind another hill. We rode on about half a mile further, when our horses refused to go further. About a hundred yards distance, we saw two persons moving around with lights. Drawing our Winchesters, for we were now thoroughly aroused to the importance of the situation, we demanded... Who is that, and what are you doing? A man with a long, dark beard came forth with a lantern in his hand, and on being informed who we were, proceeded to tell us that he and the others, a young man and a woman, were traveling through the country in an airship. We could plainly distinguish the outlines of the vessel, which was cigar-shaped and about 60 feet long, and looking just like the cuts that had appeared in the papers recently. It was dark and raining, and the young man was filling a big sack with water about 30 yards away, and the woman was particular to keep back in the dark. She was holding an umbrella over her head. The man with the whiskers invited us to take a ride, saying that he could take us where it was not raining. We told him we believed we preferred to get wet. 
Asking the man why the brilliant light was turned on and off so much, he replied that the light was so powerful that it consumed a great deal of his motive power. He said he would like to stop off in hot springs for a few days and take the hot baths, but his time was limited and he could not. He said they were going to wind up in Nashville, Tennessee after thoroughly seeing the country. Being in a hurry, we left, and upon our return, about 40 minutes later, nothing was to be seen. We did not hear or see the airship when it departed. Okay, that report seems rather reasonable. It's a little before Zeppelins were patented in the U.S., and it doesn't sound at all fantastical. That's just one example, though. These airship sightings have been reported much, much earlier. The next incident took place in Ireland in the year 1211. There happened in the borough of Clara one Sunday, while the people were at Mass, a marvel. In this town is a church dedicated to St. Canaris. It befell that an anchor was dropped from the sky with a rope attached to it, and one of the flukes caught the arch above the church door. The people rushed out of the church and saw in the sky a ship with men on board, floating before the anchor cable, and they saw a man leap overboard and jump down to the anchor, as if to release it. He looked as if he were swimming in water. The folk rushed up and tried to seize him, but the bishop forbade the people to hold the man, for it might kill him, he said. The man was freed and hurries up to the ship, where the crew cut the rope and the ship sailed out of sight. But the anchor is in the church, and has been there ever since as testimony. This account clearly can't be called a zeppelin, based on the time period. But what was it? And why were they using mundane objects like anchors when they had a ship that could fly? The modern era isn't bereft of these weird reports either. Our next one comes from France. On October 12, 1954, at about 10.30 in the evening, 13-year-old Gilbert Lallet was walking around outside when he saw in a pasture a machine that he described as a phosphorescent cigar. Close to the object was a man in a gray suit, boots, and a gray hat. He placed a hand on Gilbert's shoulder and said, Look, but don't touch. In the man's other hand, he held a sphere that emitted purple beams of light. Soon after, the man climbed into the ship. The door closed with a sound like a clap of thunder, and the vessel rose vertically into the air. It made a few loops, casting off light in all directions, and then it vanished. That sounds as much like a science fiction story as anything else, especially coming from a 13-year-old. But what about our next account, which comes from a 57-year-old civilian instructor with the Air Force? March 23, 1966, in Temple, Oklahoma, W.E. Laxon was driving towards Shepard Air Force Base early in the morning. He had to stop when he noticed that the road was blocked by an object the size of a Douglas C-124, but it had no wings nor visible engines. It was resting on pads about three feet off the ground. As if this weren't strange enough, 
there was a man in coveralls and a baseball cap examining something on the underside of the craft. Laxon said he looked like a normal GI mechanic with a flashlight. Apparently, after making his report, Laxon elaborated that the ship looked like it was made in America because the man looked like a regular soldier. These are some of the more bizarre stories in this book, for sure. There aren't a ton of modern, or at least modern for the time at which this book was written, UFO reports in here, but that's probably because Valet had just finished writing two entire volumes about that subject. For my last story, I want to tell you about a very strange UFO encounter that seems to bring several of these elements together. An account known as the Simonton Affair. This event took place on April 18, 1961, on the farm of Joe Simonton in Wisconsin. He was eating breakfast at around 11 o'clock in the morning when he heard a sound that he described as knobby tires on wet pavement. He went outside to investigate and saw a silvery object that resembled two bowls placed opposite each other with exhaust pipes around the circumference. A hatch opened, and one of three men stepped out. They were described as short, around five feet tall, and as Simonton stated, Italian-looking, whatever that means. It's me! They wore black turtlenecks and knit helmets. Yes, you heard that correctly. Knit helmets. The one who stepped out of the craft had a white stripe running down the side of one of his pant legs. He gave Simonton a jug that resembled a thermos. Simonton reacted in what seemed to him to be a logical manner in this situation, and he went inside to fill the jug with water from the tap. Clearly, the Italian turtleneck alien wanted a drink. Joe returned with the water, which he handed over to White Stripe, and began to examine what he could see of the interior of the craft. There were instrument panels with many different colored lights, and it appeared that one of the aliens was... cooking? He said that the alien was using a flameless grill to make pancakes. When Simonton gestured towards them, they seemingly decided that he was hungry. So they gave him some of these pancakes, which were really only about three to four inches in diameter and completely perforated with holes. At this point, White Stripe attached a cable of some sort to his belt, which retracted him into the hovering spaceship. The hatch closed, the ship flew off, and Simonton was left standing there with lukewarm pancakes sitting in the palm of his hand. Joe called the cops, who sent out the local sheriff. The sheriff had known Simonton for quite some time, so he knew that he wasn't one for making up stories. In fact, Joe Simonton was later quoted as saying that if he ever saw another flying saucer, that he would keep it to himself. And the pancakes? The Air Force stepped in to lend assistance here, and they had one of them analyzed. They didn't contain anything out of the ordinary, though maybe a bit unappetizing. It contained hydrogenated fat, starch, buckwheat hulls, soya bean hulls, and wheat bran. 
Simonton, who had tasted one of these pancakes, lamented that they tasted like cardboard. Throughout this episode, and this book, you may have begun to notice the similarities between modern UFO abduction encounters and encounters with other various entities from around the world throughout time. What does it all mean? Valet asks, quote, Is it reasonable to draw parallel between religious apparitions, the fairy faith, the reports of dwarf-like beings with supernatural powers, the airship tales of the United States in the last century, and the present stories of UFO landings? I would strongly argue that it is, for one simple reason. The mechanisms that have generated these various beliefs are identical. Their human context and their effect on humans are constant. End quote. In the end, Valet lists five facts about UFO encounters and three propositions. Fact number one. Since 1946, there has been active generation of what he calls colorful rumors that center on observations of unknown machines close to the ground in rural areas, physical traces left by these machines, and their various effects on humans and animals. Fact number two. The archetypes surrounding the flying saucer myth has considerable overlap with reports of encounters with otherworldly entities across the globe throughout time. Fact number three. While various entities have been described, a majority of, quote, pilot entity reports describe them in one of two categories. Dwarf-like and fairy-like. All entities have been described without breathing apparatus. Fact number four. There is a link between the absurdity of their behavior and the description of their vessels. In conversation, they are intentionally vague or misleading in their statements. And fact number five. This is a direct quote. The mechanism of the apparitions in legendary, historical, and modern times is standard and follows the model of religious miracles. Using these five observable facts, Valet says the following propositions are true. Proposition number one. While the reports of interactions with otherworldly entities seem absurd and nonsensical, the concept of non-human intelligence has not been taken into consideration. By placing our own standards of intelligence on another entity, it would, by default, make it appear ludicrous to the observer. Proposition number two. We must admit that our observation and understanding of time is still limited. Without an understanding of the physics behind the concept, any speculation on the subject is little more than an academic exercise. And proposition number three. The entire phenomenon contains all the elements of a myth that could be used to serve political or sociological purposes. This is illustrated by the link between the level of human technology and the machinations in the reports themselves. Wow, 
That's a lot to think about, for sure. In conclusion, Valet has this to say, quote, The problem cannot be solved today. If we absolutely must have something to believe, then we should join one of these numerous groups of people who have all the answers. Read Menzel's books or The Condon Report, that fine piece of scientific recklessness. Or subscribe to the magazines that prove that flying saucers are real and from outer space. I have not written this book for such people, but for those who have gone through all of this and have graduated to a higher, clearer level of perception of the total meaning of that tenuous dream that underlies the many nightmares of human history. For those who have recognized, within themselves and others, the delicate levers of imagination and will not be afraid to experiment with them. Are you all overwhelmed yet? There were a few times reading this book where I had to set it down and process what I had just read. The strange thing is, as wild as most of these stories are, in the context that Valet lays out, they kind of make sense. Not in an, oh, so that's what aliens are kind of way, but more like a connecting of the dots kind of way. Are we any closer to understanding what these things are? Well, no, not really. Does it make me slightly less uneasy about reported sightings? Uh, maybe a little bit. It does help to know that, as strange as these encounters are, they are not exactly unique. This stuff has been happening to people for as long as recorded history, if not before. There's not many instances where you can say that something is paradigm-shifting, but this book, despite its poor initial reception, really is. Valet began his career by defining and researching the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but Passport to Magonia is where he really changed the face of paranormal research. As wild as the Eighth Tower was, Passport to Magonia is infinitely more readable and presents well-cited research. Dr. Valet is easily in the same category as Charles Fort and John Keel when it comes to groundbreaking work. While it's not his most recent book, ultimately, I feel like this is the work that he will be best known for. But hey, he's still around, so he may surprise us yet. If you want your own copy of Passport to Magonia, I'll post a link in the show notes. This concludes Season 2 of the Esoteric Book Club. And man, what a wild ride it has been. I feel like I was sent down a path after my interview with Jeremy McGowan, which led me to both John Keel and Jacques Vallée's books. In that interview, I was shocked by the idea that aliens could be ultra-terrestrial rather than extraterrestrial. But now I feel like that may actually be the case. Anyway, I hope this season was as enjoyable for you to consume as it was for me to bake full of holes over a flameless alien griddle. I will be taking a one-month break, one book club episode and one news brief episode, before returning with season three. 
I have a lot of stuff in the works, and frankly, I haven't had a real break since I began this podcast two years ago. To conclude tonight's episode, I want to thank the amazing Sarah Rudy for allowing me to use a portion of the song Fight Don't Fight for my intro and outro music. If you want to check out more of her work, you can find her band Hello June on bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, and at esotericbookclub.org. If you are in the West Virginia area, you may actually get a chance to meet me in person at several events throughout the summer. I can assure you, I am indeed a bearded weirdo. You've been warned. Patrons, stick around for your bonus content. For everyone else, until next season, remember, stay weird. special weirdos. It's time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. Tonight I'm going to tell you a couple of the stranger stories that can be found within the pages of Passport to Magonia. The first is an Algonquin story about, well, I'll let you decide that.